0: So obviously what we do at Cross Life is a little bit different than than what some would call like the traditional church. Um, some of that is that we have good practices in traditional churches. They are good practices, but sometimes the good practices become what people are drawn to rather than just the word being central. So I have this conviction as a pastor, um, and it's really what motivated and I think God used to drive us and our family to gather together with fellow believers we just want to know what if we stripped everything else away and all we did was put the word at the center um, not a great speaker that's why you got me and not clever um clever staging or or uh, buildings or anything like that but what if we just said you know what it looks like, what the church has to be at its core, is believers gathering together to do what believers love to do. And so that's, that's why I always say that. What we see historically is that God's people have always been drawn and shaped by His Word. So, that's why we preach the way we do. And that's why we're moving through John. The most abiding thing that I can give you, or the, the most fruitful thing I can give you for your abiding is for you to have the Word. And so that's why we open it, and that's why we saturate our services with it. And um, so with that said, we're going to be in John 16, verses 1 through 4. Now, you're probably looking at 1 through 4 and going, I wonder how much he's actually going to squeeze out of every single word in 1 through 4. And that's okay. You should live in fear. Okay? Fear's a great motivator. But there really are two truths here, and, and we're going to look at them. Yeah, you know, The two great truths we see here is see the great care of our Lord, but see the great persecution of the world. Like Those are the two main things. And it's, it's not going to take long for us to be able to draw that out, but, but I do want us to look at that. And then there's also probably going to be this temptation in you. As we read it, you're like, well, what does that have to do with me? Because he's talking to the disciples. We don't have synagogues, so I'm not going to get cast out of a synagogue. And surely nobody's going to kill me. So what does this even have to do with me? And so I want to kindly say at the very beginning of all of this, in such a gracious way, these verses really have nothing to do with you or me on the surface. Like these aren't about us. These are about the disciples. But as we look at the disciples as examples, I pray that we are encouraged and motivated to live as they live. Does that make sense? Sometimes James just says flat out, you don't need to do this, you need to do this. And we're like, okay, that's for me. And we underline it. We get to this one and we realize that the disciples are being taught by God, by Jesus, that they're going to be thrown out of synagogues and that they're going to be killed and that Jesus is no longer going to be with them. So on the surface, we might say, yeah, but what about me? Okay, so let's not do the me right now. Let's just look at the disciples and the Lord and we will glean. God will teach us in his own way. So with that said, John 16:1 through 4. John sixteen one through 4 Jesus is still speaking. Remember, we've had the Last Supper, the washing of the feet, Judas going out. We've had Him talking about abiding in Him, abiding with one another, and then the world will hate you because you don't abide with it. And He's still talking and He says, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray. Lord God, Your Word opened before us, but not words just written by John who had a great idea. Your Word tells us that every word of Scripture is tried and true and it is profitable. That that John only wrote because You moved him by Your Holy Spirit. So a holy God communicating with us today through your holy word. Lord, like John, we are imperfect people. We are all imperfect disciples. But Lord, I pray that your word will shape us so that we can live for your glory and know you and make you known. Lord God, your spirit and your teaching, not my words, are what will really bring your words to application for us. So, Lord, help us in the midst of a crazy world to cling to that which is sure and true. And, Lord, I look forward to this one day, that one day we will not gather in separate groups or tribes or denominations or church buildings, but one day we will gather before you face to face and you will be our God. And we will be with you forever and ever. Lord God, we love you. Amen. All right, y'all. So let's let's dive into this first big first big thing that you that i want you to see out of this text and surely as i'm looking at it you see this y'all look at the great care of the lord he is about to die he knows where he is going he's on his way to the cross he's about to die and he tells him everything that we've covered over the last month and two months he's told him all of this and now he says i've told you this for one reason i've shared this with you for one reason i've said all these things verse one says I've said all these things to you. Why? To keep you from falling away. Look at verse 4. He says, But I've said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Y'all, so this is is great care. This is Him forewarning His disciples because He's about to go away. Okay, so look real quick. I'm not going to preach exposition on this part, but look at the end of verse 14. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Well, why does that even matter? Because of this. Because while he's been with him this whole time, all of the hatred and persecution of the world has been funneled onto him. So he didn't have to warn them. And now he says, I'm about to go away. And whenever I go away, all that persecution and hatred that was on me, that with me out of the way, it's all going to come full bore onto you. So you need to know that you're going to be hated. Because I'm gone, you need to know that all of that which has been on me is about to be poured out onto you. And so I'm saying, I see the great care of our Lord here. Because He's taken time to say, you need to know what's about to come. Because if you think about it, when you know what's about to come, you can have greater confidence and you can be more encouraged whenever it comes. I mean, I think that all of us have been there, right? Think of it this way. You are absolutely sure of something, typically, and then whenever hardship comes, you begin to quake. Right? Just think about it. you You can be absolutely sure of something, and then whenever hardship comes, you begin to quake. And this happens like in a friendship. Okay? You can have a great friendship, and then you get into an argument, and, and whenever that argument happens, now there's hardship, and so you're thinking, well, oh, goodness, what now? And So there's kind of that doubt that creeps in. Uh, this happens at work a whole lot. You're sure of the quality of your, of your work. You're sure of your work's integrity. You know and believe in what you're doing. You're confident in it until somebody questions you. And then all of a sudden, there's that one spark. And that one spark within you starts to build this fire and it can consume you. Or with your spouse. You have a great relationship. And then there's that one fissure, that one argument. And then that little fissure, that little crag begins to seem like a chasm because you don't know what's going to happen from there. A lot of that is exactly why jesus is doing what he's doing one of the things that i like to tell um people whenever like younger people or i don't really know many older people who like older than me they get married but so younger people whenever they're about to get married chas and i can talk to them and and you've 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 heard this before someone who's been married for a while they tell the young couple they're like there's going to be hard days by the way there's going to be hard times there's going to be darkness there's going to be times Whenever you just really want to kill each other, but you can't because it's against the law, but you want to. But like we warn, why? Why do we warn? Because we want everyone to know that when those moments come, it's going to be okay, right? It's really going to be okay. Whenever I was a youth pastor, I could refer back to, to like my own days as a youth. And I could tell them, I know exactly what you're walking through. If you walk just a little bit further, it's going to be okay. That's the context of what Jesus is doing here. That's where I see the great care of our Lord because He's saying to them that when I die, the world is suddenly going to turn all of its hatred on you, but when it does, know that it's okay. Like it's turning its hatred on you because you're holding to me and now that I'm not here, they're going to turn to you, they're going to hate you, and because of me, who you've worshipped and followed, they are going to reject you. And because of me, who you've devoted your life to, they're going to ridicule you And because of me and and you proclaim me, all the religious leaders are gonna think that you're a cult and they're gonna cast you out of the synagogues. But I want you to know it's okay. Because I told you it was gonna be this way. You know what's coming. So I really do. I look at if you can imagine what it would have been like to be the disciples in like they've been at the the Last Supper, they've they've been drawn to this man who they believe is the promised one, and he tells them, I'm about to die and I'm about to be gone, and you're gonna be hated. And what doubt there must be that's starting to rise in them. But actually, if you, if you read a little bit further, He gives them a great hope, and that's where we're going to end today. So did He tell you and did He tell me, don't worry, they're going to they're gonna throw you out of the synagogues, they're going to kill you? Not directly, but maybe indirectly. We can glean from that. But directly what He's telling them is He's telling His best friends, because He's walked with them for years now, and He's telling them, they're going to kill you. Like, he doesn't say, look at verse 2, Indeed, the hour is coming if whoever kills you. But now look at the language. Indeed, the hour is coming that when they kill you, they think that they're offering a service to God. So I see this great care. And so, I'm just thinking if I was a disciple and I'm listening to this, there would probably be that big question of, God, why? Like, why if you're the Messiah, why if you were God... Then, then why are we going to have to be hated for this? Like, if you really are what all men have needed and hoped for, then why are we going to be hated? And this is me pastorally stepping in, and I just simply say in church, we won't always know the wise, and we weren't ever meant to know the wise. I think oftentimes we can't handle the wise of what God is doing. There is a veil there where we are in this world, and God is beyond, and He orchestrates everything according to His plan, and we're sitting on this side going, but why? You know, Job never knew why. He only knew that he had to cling to, to God. So that's me pastorally saying that Jesus doesn't always, and God don't always He doesn't always tell us why. He does tell us why right here, though. He does say, you will be ridiculed and you will be hated and they will kill you. Why? Because you love me. So there is a line in the sand for believers that was true for them, and it's got to be true for us today that if we would cling to Christ, it's going to be exactly what we see in John 15, that the world will hate us. Y'all, his warning there is really to just encourage them and to say, take heart, but basically be ready for battle because it's going to look like this. I think of 2 Thessalonians. If y'all will, you're going to turn to your right. You're going to go past Acts, Romans, uh, your Corinthians. Keep turning. You're going to get to a small book, 2 Thessalonians. And then we're going to move on to our second point from this text. So he cares for us and he's basically saying be ready because it's coming. In 2nd Thessalonians, Paul, who was Saul that we're about to look at here in a second. But Paul said in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. He writes, "But we ought always To give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. So he's writing to believers and he says, we always got to give thanks for who you are. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. So real quick, just want to apply this. He's saying, he's writing to believers. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to believers. He said, I want to say first... We need to be thankful for one another because God has called us to be saved. And he does this through the sanctifying work of his spirit and our belief. Okay, both sides. Now here it goes. To this he called you through our gospel. So he called you to salvation through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so we're all good? So then here's Paul's advice. Here's his command. So then, brothers, so then, Christians, so then, cross life, stand firm. That's it. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So my advice to you, the Lord has, has told us, He said, when these things happen, you need to remember I told you. You know you why, why you need to remember I told you? Because if, if you really love me and you know that I told you, you know that I've, that I've, I've warned you. And you can be ready. And so Paul in 2 Thessalonians gives us two words that I think Christians need more these days. And it's what the disciples needed. And it's this. Stand firm. In fact, this is also in Ephesians. He tells us about how husbands should love wives and wives with husbands and children's not provoking fathers. And he tells us that that, uh, all of this we can can we can fight with with the the um, I'm drawing a blank real quick, the armor of God, I'm sorry, but in the midst of all that, he said, having done all these things, stand firm. The chief thing that we need to learn to do is to stand firm in the faith that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. So then whenever i whenever I'm talking to my kids, I warn them. the other day we're we're driving along the road and and then I had to start warning them about things and issues in this world that I want them to be mindful of. And we, So several of us got to do the walk for life yesterday. And that was great to be with one another and to see others who were just supporting that ministry. But more than the ministry itself, I love what the ministry about. It's about the sanctity of life. It's about saying that, no, God is the creator of life. Who are we to take it? Like, I love that. So we, we showed up, and our kids are thinking, well, what does it mean to be a walk for life? So we had to tell them, about abortion and we had to tell them what it was and we talked through that. and so I'm warning them and I'm telling them and I'm guiding them in much the same way that Jesus was warning and guiding his disciples so that they would know how to think and process through it. so I my main point was I just wanted us, I think that we as believers need to see the great care of our Lord in this moment that those whom he loves He warns. How merciful and gracious that the God who created the world, The God who spoke the stars into existence, He's the God who stops on the road and He says, while I hold all things together, when you suffer, know that I've told you and it's okay. Y'all, the second big point out of this that we've got to see is in verse 2 and in verse 3. In verse 2 and verse 3, we see the great delusion of the world. Now, how is this different? In chapter 15... Jesus already said, the world's going to hate you. This is a little bit more intense. 16 steps into a little bit more. 15, he said, the world's going to hate you. And in 16, he says, the religious leaders, they're going to hate you. So the point for this one is, we can see the great compassion or the great care of our Lord here. We've got to see the great delusion of the world, that the world just doesn't get it. Y'all look at this. John 16, verse 2 starts, it says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. To God, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So their persecution is not just going to be from the world. Now it's going to be from people who can actually put them out of the synagogues. Who would that be the religious leaders of that time? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other Jews, those who say that they love God because they've been holding to His law, they're actually going to forcefully shove them out of the synagogues. I'm not going to make you turn there, but John chapter 9. You should read it again. We preach through it. John chapter 9, you probably remember the story. This is whenever there's a blind man and the blind man is sitting there and the, the disciples and Jesus walk by and whenever they do, the disciples say, Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was been born blind from birth. And Jesus said, do you remember his response? It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, pausing to connect to this one other pastoral moment of why. Why was this man born blind? How about Jesus' answer right there? So that the power and might and glory of God may be known through him. Sometimes that's the only answer to why, is that so that God's glory can be known in this moment. But coming back to that story in John 9, they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? He's been born blind. Jesus said, neither. It's so that I can show my power through him. And so he, he restores a man's sight. And if you remember, the Pharisees and the Jews, they go to the man and they're like, who restored your sight? He's like, that guy? I don't know. And so then as they're doing that, um, Jesus and them are kind of off scene. The Pharisees and Sadducees and Jews, they don't believe that this man was born blind. So they go to his parents and the parents say, oh, no, he's been born blind. And they're like, "Okay, well, who healed him? And it says that the parents were even uncomfortable with the question. So they're like, he's of age. You should just ask him because they knew that if they profess the name of Christ, they will be kicked out of that synagogue. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, they go back to the man and they say, who healed you? And he's like, I've told you. That man, And they're like, okay, so do you think that that man is from God? He's like, who else could have done this? So he proclaims Christ. And the way that that whole scene ends, says that they, quote, they cast him out because he professed Christ. So this is already happening. And Jesus says, it's about to happen, not to other people. It's about to happen to you. The world is so blind that you'll be hated and despised as my disciples. Well, we know from tradition, y'all get this, of the disciples, only John was not killed. All the disciples that he's talking to, only John was not killed. Such is the delusion of the world that they would actually think that they are honoring God by killing the disciples who profess Jesus' name. This is exactly what was going on, y'all, whenever uh, I Saul Acts 22, do y'all remember Saul's conversion um, earlier in Acts? Listen to Acts 22, okay? You you with kids, you parents, you're doing a fantastic job. Okay, Acts 22, 3 through 5 says this. Saul, now Paul, says, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, uh, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So he's saying, look, basically, you want to know who was a true Jew, like a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, like the greatest with the greatest zeal for God? I thought that that was me. I went to all the right schools. I sat under the right teachers. I was doing everything the right way. He even says in verse 4, I persecuted this way. Way there, by the way, is a capital W. That was originally what Jesus' group was called. They were called the way. Okay, So he said, I persecuted the way to death. So he killed them. I would bind them and deliver them to prison, both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. So you don't believe that I persecuted them? You don't believe that I send them to death? You don't believe I put them on death row? Ask the high priest. Ask the high council. They will tell you. I would receive letters from them to the brothers, and I would journey toward Damascus to take all those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So here is Saul who was ready to persecute and kill, and you know what? He thought he was doing everything he was supposed to to worship God. Listen to Acts 26, much the same way. Paul is still speaking. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The reason I'm using Saul, now Paul, is because, remember in Thessalonians when we read that letter? That's Saul who just said that I would send them to death and I would, I'd be willing to kill them. And I hated them. He's the one who wrote Second Thessalonians. And he says, brothers and sisters in Christ, stand firm. Like he called you, he called me out of this darkness. We are hated. Like he's the one who is on the other side of the fence, the other side of the war. And he has come across and he says, we got to do this thing together. We need one another. Stand firm in the faith to which he has called you. But y'all, what blindness the world has. And what darkness there is that even those who claim to have a zeal and a desire for God, they cannot honor him because they do not see Christ for who he is. I promise we're almost done, but I do want you to I want you to see two verses, two passages as we wind up. It's this one. Look at 2 Corinthians 4 4. You and I really need to see this one. 2 Corinthians 4 4. We need to see all Scripture, I know, but we really need to see this one because we need to know what we're up against. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, by the way, Paul, Saul, who is now Paul, the great persecutor, who gave us the vast majority of the New Testament epistles, he says, in their case, look, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So why is it that you and I will share the gospel, we will tell others, or we will live in a way that honors God, and yet we will be hated because the God of this world does have power, y'all. And the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We just need to know that. We just need to know that our enemy actually is very powerful. You know what breaks through blindness? Not our perfect speech. Not us clarifying through apologetics. I think that those are useful. What breaks spiritual blindness are God's people praying that the blindness is broken. I mean, whenever we truly want to know and we truly want to see someone convert and we want to see them come to know God, what is it that we really do? We default to one thing. We typically just begin to pray. We don't have to think through a theological framework. We don't have to know are we Arminian or Calvinist. We don't have to know are we Baptist or Methodist. What we have to know is that there is a God and we can pray to Him and that there is a God of this world who has power, but y'all, there there is a God of the world who has all power. So we need to cling to and follow that God. Now flip, you're going to be flipping to your, your left now, to Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 2 through 4, Paul, the same Paul, is writing this, and I think he's the only one who could have really written this, he says, for I bear them, the Jews, I bear them witness that they, the Jews, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, why is it, because this doesn't seem right, that's why I'm going into this, why is it that those, that Jesus says, they believe that they are offering service to God, yet they're about to kill the disciples, why would they believe that that is service to God? And it really comes down to what Jesus tells us in John 16, and what we see in Romans 10, 2-4, they didn't get Jesus at all. If they truly loved God, then they would truly love Jesus. But they did not love Jesus, therefore they did not love God. Y'all, there is an eternally damning position to love God and to reject Christ. If we do not embrace Christ, we will have an eternal separation from those who do. But they would be so blind that they would claim that they love God, but they would not love Jesus. They would not see and savor who He is. I'm going to sum it all up this way because I think you get it. Like I'm just seeing on your face. Any rejection of Jesus then or now, any rejection of Jesus is a rejection of God. So you and I, some real world applications real quick. Y'all, there are false teachers in this world. It's clear in Scripture that as the days go on, there will be more and more false teachers. And one of the ways we're going to know them is that They will tell you that you can believe in God and that you can love God, but then they won't really talk or focus on Jesus and that love of God. If Christ is not the center of their message and anything else is, our happiness, um, our satisfaction, our joy, the church itself, if Christ is not the cornerstone of that message, then we are clinging to the wrong thing. But false teachers will arise from amongst believers, Scripture says, And so we have to be careful and be on guard. Just be watchful in the Spirit. And then be careful of the Jesus that they do hold up. Is it the the hippie Jesus who loves everyone and everyone's free to come and there's no no worries, man, everything's going to be fine? Is it the hippie Jesus? Is it the political Jesus? Who, if you cling to this platform or this political group, or you listen to Him, it's all political. So there's the political Jesus... Is it the the current Jesus where I you know, I get it. That's what we said back in the biblical days. But these days, culture's different. So my norms have changed. My holiness has been re- readjusted. So there's like this cultural Jesus. Y'all, the Jesus that you and I need is the high and holy Jesus of Scripture, who is high and exalted. He was with God in the beginning. Whenever He created, He holds all things together. He is the image of the invisible God, and He sits at the right hand of God. And all of the elders and all of the creatures and everything in heaven and earth will bow down before him he is unchanging from beginning to end if they do not proclaim that jesus then he is a false jesus that's what you and i need that's what keeps me going every day that's what whenever sin comes its way and here comes sin and it looks alluring then there is a great and holy god who is much more worthy and who offers so much more satisfaction so beware of false teachers They will believe that they are doing God's work and that they have a zeal for God. And yet, if their image and their presentation and their focus of Jesus is not right, then they are off. You also need to be watching my presentation and view and image of Jesus. Because Scripture is clear. Anyone can become a false teacher. That's why I love the Bereans in Acts. Paul says, after we presented... The scripture to you, the Bereans would go home and they would study scriptures to make sure that what we were saying was true. So, watch me. Last one. Because you can be religious and never love Christ, I just want you to be on guard. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jews, all of them, they had a zeal for God. They wanted to see God lifted up. They followed the law. But because you can be religious, that doesn't mean that you love Jesus. That's your heart check and my heart check. We can be zealous and never know Jesus. We can be gracious and kind and merciful and faithfully attend a church building and be with other believers and yet never cling to Christ at all. But we know the Scripture says that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the stumbling block. He's that one thing that as we live for Him, other people will naturally just stumble over it. And what we want to do is we want to live as, uh, as blameless as we can, as upright as we can, as, quote, quietly as we can, so that whenever they see our walk and how we cling to Christ, they see something that is completely different than the rest of the world. That will draw some, and then that will cause others to reject and hate us. So what do you do with 16, 1 through 4? I would say this see the great care of our Lord who stopped and spoke to his disciples and said, I want you to know that I am true and you're about to be hated and killed for it, but it's going to be okay because I told you it was true. And I want you to see the great delusion of the world. It's such a delusion that it's not just the world, but the religious leaders will hate the disciples and those disciples will cling to their faith, to their death through persecution and through death, they will continue to proclaim the, no, the name of Jesus Christ. And so this is number three. This is point three. There's only two points there. Point three is what we're going to talk about the next time we gather. See the great hope that Jesus gives. Here's what he says in the following verses. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And then this is five through seven. But now that I'm going to him who sent me, none of you ask me where are you going But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Here it is, y'all. Here's our great hope. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. So he didn't just say, don't worry, by the way, you're going to be hated and you're going to die. He says, I'm leaving. But when I leave, the Spirit is coming. And here's what I think is really neat, believers. That whether we gather here or across town or in small groups, Throughout the ages, God's people who have clung to the name, clung, cleaned, whatever it is, those who hold to the name of Jesus, they have the same spirit that you and I have within us right now. Is that not amazing? That our children, as they grow up, and they believe in Jesus Christ, their His spirit is in them. And as they proclaim, and their kids' kids believe in Jesus like there is one spirit that God puts into all of his people. This is why we can do something so weird as we all come from different walks of life. We have no really other reason that we would draw together except that there's a spirit within us that says, I want to be with these people because there's something in them that is in me and we all proclaim it together. So there was a great care of the Lord, the great delusion of the world, and then the great hope is that his spirit is coming. So this, this one always brings a smile to my face as I close. Y'all know what the um, Pony Express was? Okay. My kids, whenever I mention it this morning, they told me, they're like, oh, we thought coronavirus was like so messing everything up that they were actually about to start using ponies. Because So that shows how deficient we are in history in my house. But the Pony Express, um, it had an ad. Uh, I'm looking for it right here. Here was their wanted. Here was the job description. Wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows. Not over 18. Must be expert writers. Okay, I'm good with all that. Listen to this. Willing to risk death daily. Orphans preferred. That is what it meant. That was the job description. And then it said, um, and then it gave a Price. So you would probably read that today and be like, I oh, don't know, willing to risk death daily. I mean, what about my FMLA and my my paid time off? Like, what are the benefits? The benefits of this one are, are you young enough? Are you experienced enough? And are you willing to die? And you know what? They did it. The young men would embrace this job. They were willing to face death daily for that pay, and they were will. I mean, even orphans preferred. And my kids are like, why orphans? I'm like, because then they don't have to call the family. Right? In other words, you come here and you might not make it through the day. I mean, would you sign up for that? And the truth is, that's exactly, in many ways, what we've been called to in our faith. Now, it's not, it's not, are you a young, wiry fellow? It's not, are you over 18 and are you an expert writer? But it is, will you follow me? wherever it is that I lead you, is what Christ asks. Will you cling to me and risk death daily if that's what it comes to? Am I worth it enough for your absolute devotion? But I do love that Pony Express. I mean, they hid nothing. I mean, hey, you might die, by the way, but this is going to be an exciting journey. You want to? And kids are like, sure, why not? I can do this. Y'all, Jesus demands... That we are not only willing to die in the end, not only willing to follow Him throughout life, but get this one. Are we willing to be obedient in the moment? That's harder. I would like to say that I'm willing to die for Jesus then whenever I'm like 73 and they pull me into a choir. Yeah, I'm going to die for Him then. It's a lot harder to die in this moment to myself and just be obedient. And that's, what, that's, the, that's the pill that He has given those disciples to swallow. It's about to get bad, he tells them. All right. My pastoral advice to you is cling to Christ. You're in His hand. Nothing can take you out of His hand. And then just abide in Christ, even when the world hates you. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. Thank you for your word that shows us the disciples as examples. Lord, may we see them as examples. And in my heart is this, Lord, as I read about them and what they're about to face. Lord, help me to walk in a way like that. Because it's, I think, in many ways easier to, to say that we follow you today. Would I have followed you then? Because nothing has changed. If we truly live so passionately for you, then it's going to cause others to hate us. We don't have to ask for it. So Lord, help us to cling to you. And I thank you for your great care and your great love that said, hey, when this comes, no, you're going to be fine because of my spirit is coming. And Lord, your spirit is with us today. Lord, we love you. Amen.